Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elana Levin, aka Twitter's Elana Brooklyn. Uh, this is a podcast for people who think the only thing better than the brotherhood of data is the sisterhood of data. That's right. We're back to talk about season three of Doom Patrol. Um, I'm really excited to do this. I have amazing guests joining me today, and we will be covering in this episode um, season three as our focus, uh, but only up through Bird, the end of Bird Patrol. We have not seen anything after that. And then I'll be joined with other guests later on to cover the rest of the series um, when the finale comes out. And this is part of, you know, we've basically been covering Doom Patrol on it from HBO since the series launched. Our first episode was like, to Doom Patrol or not to Doom Patrol, goal of which was to help folks decide if they wanted to watch the show or not. And we went, leaned right into yes as the answer. And since then, you know, the popularity of the show has just been building and building. Uh, you know, now it's exclusively on HBO. They took it off the DC Universe app, which is kind of a bummer for those of us who also like comics. Uh What's been interesting to me is it felt like season two was the season where critics from outside of nerd journalism spaces were like, oh, this show is serious and we're going to go and we're going to cover it like it's prestige TV because it's prestige TV. And now season three, I feel like there continues to be a consensus that this is like gets qualified as quote unquote good television. But I'm not seeing a ton of critical writing about it, uh, analyzing season three at all. Um, I don't know if that was just because assignment desks decided that now that people have decided that this is the Greg Berlanti show that's actually good and to be looked at it with esteem, they don't have to do criticism. Like, they don't have to write about every. I'm not exactly sure what the, what the reason is, but um, I'm excited for us to have this conversation so you actually can have a place where folks are talking about this series um, at the intersection of comics and politics and social change with two amazing guests who are just really on board for that mission. Uh, but if you haven't listened to our coverage of seasons one and two yet, go back and take a look because there's a lot of it and I'm pretty proud of it. And joining me today is Christian Perez. He is the manager of media strategy at the Opportunity Agenda, a social communication, social justice communications lab. Christian collaborates with researchers, advocates, and creative strategists to help develop stories and advance intersectional solutions on voting rights, criminal justice reform, and much more. Christian entered the fandom space through Star Trek Next Generation and the Michael Keaton Batman movie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It was so much fun when you reached out to me the other day. I, I think you would ask if I was watching Titans, which I'm not, but then you were like, what do you know about... Uh, Jason Todd. And I'm like, well, I have other things I can send you, but I don't know about this television show. Um, so I was excited to hear you're watching Doom Patrol too. So there we go. And it's also funny because I came to Doom Patrol because of Titans. So that's an interesting uh, coming way of introducing to the universe. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably true for a lot of folks. Um, Titans has a lot of viewers. I happen to not be one of them, but it has a lot of viewers. And joining me is Lux Altram, who has been on the podcast before to talk about Shira, but this is the first time that Lux has been on to talk about Doom Patrol. Lux is a writer and podcast host whose smart commentary has been featured in a wide variety of outlets, including the New York Times, Cosmopolitan, and Hustler. She's tackled thorny topics of leaked celebrity sex tapes and public apologies as the host of the second season of New York Magazine's Tabloid and Audible's Say You're Sorry, and helped shape the Peabody-nominated TV show, 
HTTP sex.right.now as a development producer. Her debut book. Hey, (laughs) thanks for coming back. You survived the experience, as we say in the X-Men and have returned. Yeah. um, Sorry to my bio is so long. Um, Also, it's it's not HTTP. It was just sex right now. And it was just stylized with dots. Um, I just like I kind of liked it like that. HTTP sex right now, but okay, just sex dot right dot now. Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm ex- so excited to talk Doom Patrol. I will also say I have not seen Titans either. Uh, I so maybe good. I should, but but I haven't. Um, I I so I will just say that I'm not really a comics reader. I am more someone who just like enjoys superheroes in film and TV. And my entry point to Doom Patrol was that, I don't know, I guess a year ago, I finally was like, okay, I should watch Harley Quinn. And I watched Harley Quinn, and I loved it. And people kept being like, well, when are you going to watch Doom Patrol? And I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what that is. And <laughs> I just it kept being like backburnered, backburnered. Um, and then I don't even remember what exactly made me be like, okay, today's the day. But a, few, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I'm going to start Doom Patrol. And I was immediately like, holy shit, what is this show? And then got sucked in and binged it within, yeah, like a week or two. And I'm now fully caught up on season three. Awesome. I, I really feel like this is a show that just keeps getting better and better. And I truly think the pilot is the weakest episode. So I'm always telling folks, if you hate the pilot, you might not like the show. But if you're lukewarm on the pilot, like stick with it. Yeah, I I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I feel like it was much creepier at the beginning, I guess. Like, there were more moments where I felt, like, visceral disgust in the Mm. first season. And now, maybe I've just become a nerd to it, but (laughs) I also just feel like now it's going a little bit deeper. It's not as much about, like, oh, there's this, like, dead body in the parallel (laughs) universe that's sitting on a throne. Um, Like, it's, it's more, there's more depth into, like, the characters rather than, like, shock value. Hmm. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I I um I, I was just on and I don't think they've put the episode out yet, um, Champagne Sharks podcast, and I realized that my distillation of my critique of the pilot episode is simply that I think they expect us to be more scandalized by the donkey fart, and that's just not scandalizing to me. And it felt like they were patting themselves on the back by it as like the height of absurdity, when thankfully the show has since actually moved to great heights of absurdity and no longer needs to pat itself on the back. And just the character development has been so rich. And of course, the art direction has been stunning since moment one, if you ask Mm. me. Yeah, I completely forgot about the donkey fart, quite frankly. Good. (laughs) But yeah, I guess, I mean, I do just sort of want to get a sense from folks like this. This show is an interesting and it sits in an interesting place. Like it is a Greg Berlanti production um, in his, you know, coming out of the a lot of like the sort of DC television world. And I am a longstanding, huge fan of DC's animation. But this is actually the the only DC live action show that I've been excited by um and then now it's kind of been embraced into hbo land does uh, and i mean i'm excited to see you know genre work especially genre work that's drawing from comics that are as awesome as doom patrol showing up in places where wider audiences are going to have the opportunity to see it but um like do you guys feel like this is sort of a fit at hbo right now 
I mean, I think Watchmen definitely opens the door for it. Yeah, and I was also going to say that I think this is t- such a big divergence from the CW programs. Like, I was a big like fan of The Flash and uh, Arrow and all that, except after a while, I got really kind of well. I'm I still the shows are still great, but it's been harder to watch them because there's a lot of the repetitive storylines. Uh, and this these HBO shows, like I said, Titans, Watchmen, uh, Doom Patrol, they add so much depth in there. Honestly, the only problem, the challenge with Doom Patrol, and this is something I've have with a, actually a friend of mine who is big on the DC verse. It's hard to explain to him why it's such a good show. So actually, I'm gonna after this, I'm gonna probably forward him this episode as my attempt to explain why Doom Patrol is such a good show because it it does go it does sound absurd when you talk about the donkey farts or the 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 wear butts or like all these random like Ezekiel the tyrannical cockroach like there's some really divergent absurd elements of it but it just approach it it's also a way of interrogating the topic that you wouldn't have imagined being there Mm -hmm. so i think one of the reasons i personally really love doom patrol like okay so i like superhero stories but i specifically like two genres of superhero stories one is teen superheroes uh which i just find so interesting because like adult superheroes, it's always these like grandiose things that they're dealing with. Whereas like teens, it's just necessarily grounded in reality, um, mm. and so a lot of it ends up being kind of um, really about like parents and like teen struggles. Also, teens just have like very heightened emotions about everything. So it just I feel like superheroes and superpowers powers when they're grounded in like high school really really work for me. Um, but also the other genre that I love is is a uh, fuck ups with superpowers <laughs> which is like firmly what this one is um i don't know if i if you guys are familiar with the e4 show misfits but like i love misfits and i feel like doom patrol kind of scratches a similar itch where it's like we all want to believe like oh if i get a superhero if i got a superpower i would save the day and i think it's really interesting to look at stories of like what if you had a superpower but you were too big a fuck up to do anything mm-hmm. with it and like how would it interact with your life um mm-hmm. and like the fact like they do this in misfits and they and it's a similar theme in doom patrol where there's like periodically this kind of like rallying like aren't we supposed to be superheroes but everybody kind of then like slinks back to being fuck-ups and are really mm-hmm. only called to heroism when um when it's absolutely unavoidable which i think is an interesting contrast to like the Superman and Batman who is committed to justice as their full-time job. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that this is resonates as a lot more personal to people as a story for those reasons. Yeah. And um, I would just say, speaking of teen heroes, apparently young justice season four just appeared on HBO and we can oh. all watch it now. And Young Justice is totally the best superhero teens cartoon of ever, I think. Um, and I'm really excited about that. <laughs> um, and that'll also be on the app, so folks should check that out. Uh, but yeah, I... You know, I, I I think it was in the beginning when I, we first were talking about the the, the, sh- the show was, um, you know, Larry Trainer is Hal Jordan's story as horror, right? The test pilot who suddenly gets powers, but it's actually not great. It's actually body horror and terrifying. Um, 
And I, I, I'm not surprised that this is the story that connects with people much more than a Hal Jordan story. Mm. So, slash, well, there's no really shitty costuming and fewer boring white men. So that's cool. But um, anyway, I think this season, uh, you know, kicked off like just moments from the end of season two, which I actually thought was, I was not assuming that that would happen. And I think it was a cool choice. Um, I don't think it was a choice, though. I think it was more the uh, necessity of the pandemic because ah. season two, I mean, season two is only nine episodes when it was supposed to be 10. Right, Um, right. And it's so... I mean, it was fortunate that it ended in a way that sort of felt like an ending. But like for me, I don't I don't even really consider season three, episode one to be season three. To me, it really is just actually season two, episode 10. Mm, That's fair enough. Do you feel like there is a season opener here? It's episode two? Yeah, it's episode two. Absolutely. Because like season three is still wrapping up all of the Dorothy story. Season three, episode one is wrapping Mm -hmm. up the Dorothy story. It's dealing with all of that. And then I think at the very, very end, that's when you get Laura DeMille. But like she really, her story starts in episode two. And she is really the arc of season three um Mm -hmm. and like you know and it literally was like they had to stop production because of the pandemic and i'm just annoyed that they didn't make season three uh 11 episodes that it's still just 10 episodes when i'm like ah like oh and that makes me feel like season three is truncated because it's still like here's the end of season two and then only nine episodes for this story gotcha that's a good point yeah, Laura DeMille, um, you know, uh, was Michelle Michelle Gomez is the actress. Tremendous. And it's been mm-hmm. such an amazing addition to the show. Her uh, her physical performances on every level are amazing. Um, and I'm just really obsessed with this character now. For those who do not know, she is playing a character who is from the original comics. Madame Rouge is the name. And oh, the character always felt like something out of like the original James Marston and co like Wonder Woman series. Like she was like, she was very much a Wonder Woman villain. And I think that this direction for her makes a lot more sense in uh, the modern setting. And I, I, I love them both, but like, wow, like really an amazing addition to the cast. Mm. Oh, and when I saw, I mean, because she was also in uh, Doctor Who previously. So when I saw her make her appearance, I was expecting some good things. And she has fulfilled a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. Especially as you see her arc from like amnesia to kind of realizing what's been going on, um, which I don't want to give too much away in the, 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 the seventh episode. But those revelations, like the fact that she supposedly was protecting the, the sisterhood. But. Yeah, I'll, I'm not. I'll say that. No, we, we we're gonna go for listeners. We're gonna go full spoilers through Bird Patrol, um, which is everything that's been released at this moment. So, yeah. have at it. If folks are just trying to determine if they want to watch the show, I already got an episode for you about that, <laughs> and then come back and at this point. So go go for it. Well, no, I was, I was just saying like the fact that the whole time she's supposedly protecting the sisterhood of Donna, and then in reality, but but while she is doing that. She's turning how many people into weapons who are being sent to the front lines. Like that scene where they had the the guy who came in and was like, hey, I want to go into the marketing department. And then she's like, nope, you're a weapon. So she's very much sending people to the front lines to be weapons. And remember, Niles 
warned her to stay away from them because he knew how bad they were. Uh, and then hmm. she realized, like, she's she had amnesia because of the time machine, but she actually is a very, like, she's starting to discover how bad she's been. Well, and she's still clearly been manipulative, even when she mm-hmm. had amnesia. Like, Niles Calder says, like, you stay away from my people, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I will, and then she absolutely doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, What's interesting to me is like Niles is such a un- is so untrustworthy that you know when we first saw um, her in the past, I had this moment of I bet Niles's letter about how terrible she is is like I mean gaslighting. Like he's mm-hmm. he's saying his perspective of why she's bad through the lens of him having been in the Bureau of Normalcy. Like and maybe this whole letter is from that time period and he hasn't shifted his thinking on her. And now it's sort of like, okay, that's not what was going on, but that felt very possible to me until Bird Patrol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and actually that's a, a very good point because he was, but at the same time, like he was in the Bureau of Normalcy trying to like enforce the normalcy message to protect his, his kin. Um, mm-hmm. And so everyone except for that, everyone except for the people who are his people he was being very, as, honestly, I would say he was as bad as, as she was. Like, it's like, yeah. and that's the thing. It's like, he's trying to say, oh, you're so, you're the worst. It's like, no, actually, like, Niles, you're also really, 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 really bad. So, <laughs> like, you can, he can recognize It's the same. Yeah. yeah, like, each one of them has decided who are the members of their family, and those people are to mm-hmm. be protected, and then, and then everybody else doesn't matter, right? Like, there's been decades of, in, hegemony enforced by the bureau going on between the founding of the sisterhood of data and when the sisterhood decides it's like they've had enough and you know laura was just okay with that that whole time because she was just looking out for the people in her own uh, you know found family and then yep. she turns on them yeah yep. but that's the big difference she turns on her her chosen family whereas at least now whatever it's worth like he stays loyal to his family. Like he has almost like inner circles of family. Like the, mm. the his 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 maid family. I'm saying maid family because of what he did. But he's protective. He of made his them. Ma- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's protective of his maid family, except when it comes to his, I guess, biological family. Or like the the point is that he has mm-hmm. like layers of protection. Whereas Laura, like she doesn't have anyone that she seems. I mean, she was protecting the sisterhood of Dada, but as soon as like her loyalties were questioned. She she turns on that. I mean, I don't know if it was her loyalty was questioned. I think it was just she was getting so much external pressure. Like, mm. I don't think she turned on them because they were upset that she had drifted away. I think she drifted away and then was getting pressure from the Bureau of Normalcy to, to manipulate them. Because um, she wanted a promotion, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Very bad. <laughs> Um, well, I, I want to talk about Niles, you know, because he's sort of an absent presence this season. Uh, I I wasn't surprised when the show, quote unquote, killed him off and to the point where I was surprised when they had him here <laughs> voicing things as a head. A, a head revived through Willoughby say, actually saying the mourner's Kaddish, which kind of was uncomfortable for me as a Jewish person. He said, I thought the, he said the Shema. Oh, wait, did he? I'm it looking was the, at... Yeah, it was the oh, Shema. Oh, right. I'm confusing my notes about this with my notes about a completely different movie that I'll be talking about <laughs> on another podcast. Yeah. 
No, yes. he said because I remember him saying the Shema, and I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. feel about this. Yes, and then um, I was like, well, I guess like it's kind of like the word that's written on the golem. And well, so it said um. The thing that I was like, okay, maybe I'm less bothered by it, or maybe it feels like it's hanging together a little bit more, was it wasn't just that he said Shema, the Shema, it was that Emmet, uh, yeah. which is the truth, was written on Niles's forehead, um, which, you know, then, like, is kind of, okay, this feels like it's tying into, like, Gollum type stuff, Golem type stuff, and, like, yes. it feels like, okay, maybe this is more than just a casual referencing of Jewish mythology, but it was a little bit weird uh, because for those who don't know, the Shema is basically like the call to prayer. And yeah. it seemed an odd choice. Yeah, I felt uncomfortable. And yes, yeah, I'm going to be on uh, progressively horrified to talk about The Witness, which is like a horror movie set in the Hasidic sphere, which is kind of uncomfortable for me to think about as well. But anyway, mm. yeah, I mean, you know, it was like, it's true. Like, at least they have the decency to have him be a go- have him have him be the golem and have his face, <laughs> you know, written on and, and then eaten devoured by devoured by his children is it's so um, there's like, some Frankenstein to it, there's some insect life feeling to it as well. Um, it is uh, pretty bold. Mm-hmm. And he's still like, the, also the idea of u- using his, he- his head as a speaker is like, the, 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 it's just a, a pretty powerful image. Um, and because it's also showing like how powerful that, that voice still is, like him speaking as the voice of the father that can continue to uh, impact what people are doing even after he's technically speaking gone yeah i will say that his head as microphone was so far that was the image that i found the most disturbing <laughs> this season oh, yeah. it's like every season there's an image that i'm like that is horrific and just like the mesh over his mouth and the dead eyes i was like wow this is deeply upsetting to me <laughs> to the point where maybe it was a little bit of a relief when he finally got eaten yeah you know yeah. i didn't have to look at that weird <laughs> microphone mouth i was like i feel better now well and, and the fact that he's the one who cured the the, the zombification but I, it's all i was also gonna say it's also i'm curious how cliff felt about that whole thing because he kept saying how he wanted niles out and all that and then it's like oh okay so he niles still saves you as his final act mm. i think it's also like niles is like oh i'm just ahead now and like guess what cliff is cliff is just ahead now Ooh. in a way mm. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I also just want to say I I loved the Dead Boy Detective Agency, and I'm very mm-hmm. excited that they are getting their own show. Oh yes, I um they're from you know for folks who don't know they were from the uh, Sandman comics, um and actually had their own spinoffs later on. I think there's a lot to work through in there. I love uh, Larry giving the like having the opportunity even like to give like the gay elder talk to um one of the i don't remember which boy's name is what but to one of the boy detectives and um not surprised to hear the younger person brush it off especially because he's a little victorian boy but uh i thought that was a nice moment for him because he is sort of like larry struggling with parenting is a is a theme for him throughout this series now um, but yeah, like the Dead Boy Detectives was excited to have them have a girl 
character in them as well. And I appreciated the joke about carrying a baseball instead of a cricket bat because they're doing a whole America thing now. <laughs> yeah. No, and then he kept, he kept he had to keep reminding people, why do you have the bat? Because I'm in America. Like this is what you do. But uh, no, but I mean, and also the like, like so I guess like Titans reference is that episode. Like so, Titans also had a scene where they went into the, the afterlife, and that's why I mm-hmm. I was watching them parallel. And so it's just also interesting to see how they like approached purgatory, um, and mm. the fact that like. You know, in Purgatory, they were able to finally, like, escape because they they also had to kind of make that decision to decide, like, where do they want, do they want to go on to the afterlife or use this, uh, you know, take the escape hatch, so to speak. Because they were giving them the option, but they could have also chosen to just move on, uh, which, spoilers for Titans, that's something else that came up. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so I was just also in, that's one area as well that I think that, uh, them kind of coming to terms with loved ones who had passed on, I think it was like just a unique opportunity for them that, I mean, you see later on with Cliff and he, talking about his dad, like that's mm. that, I think in the seventh episode where they're talking about where his daughter said like, Oh, you're so much like your dad. And she, you can see <sighs> him like, Oh, that hurt. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually had a, a thought that um, his dad at least in Cliff's that, at least in this, looks like Steve Bannon, mm. just to make it as revolting, <laughs> revolting as, as possible. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it's it's kind of cool to have characters descend into hell and resume and return, like, early in your season, structurally. Mm. Um, and I... Th- th- of course, there's going to eventually be a zombie patrol, and it was fun to have that coming right after them, coming back to life uh one of the things that the cast was saying about taping the zombie episode is that each one of them had like a a distinct like zombie way of speaking that were different from each other so it's almost like they're coming from different genres of zombie movies also the first time i've ever seen anything i've seen zombies having a conversation which i was like oh yeah you know zombies have their own language and they talk to each other (laughs) Yeah, I liked that they weren't just like brain dead, but were actually self-aware, even as they were <laughs> overcome with brain lust. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I, I think that having Dorothy in the end go off with the uh, dead boy detectives is a nice development for her. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the character. I have some friends who are not, um, but even as someone who enjoys the character, I think that this will be a good experience for her to go and spend some time with some kids, like people her age for once. What are the objections people have to Dorothy? I'm curious. People find her annoying because she's twee. Um, and it seems to be a, a big part of it. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point. I, I think the actress's performance is amazing. I don't know if I've... Her, her and Diana Guerrero are like the two best like adults playing children I have ever seen. Um quite possibly yeah i didn't realize is she i didn't realize she was an adult like yeah i thought it was a child actress like she's she's young but i think she's like 21 or something oh wow yeah yeah no she she does great uh she's a very convincing 11 year old i i like her i mean i can see her being like kind of twee and annoying but that that's the point Mm -hmm. um and i i really like i like that she was allowed to finally grow up i like that she kind of goes off with danny like I'm I'm very and I'm very it's very tragic to me that Danny is not real. 
Mm. Mm. I, you know, that's really up there. I'm just like, ah, why can't Danny be real? But I really like I that, like, she's got the relationship with Danny. Um, and that, yeah, that she gets to go off and hang out with teenagers. <laughs> I, uh, shout out to uh, my friend Sarah Daniel, who was the guest uh, to talk about season two. I'm in their wedding party, which has officially been dubbed Groom Patrol. <laughs> And there was a Danny the Street Brick involved in the um, uh, engagement. Nice. So, <laughs> yes. Danny the Street. We always want more Danny the Street. But at least they use, when they do use Danny in the show, it does continue to feel special. Yeah, I'm hoping Danny the Ambulance comes back at some point. Um, and but- what's interesting is the Ambulance form is the form that Danny is in at least in the Doomed Patrol series I most recently read, Danny the Street is Danny the Ambulance now. Oh, interesting. A very rainbow-colored ambulance. Well, I mean, but um, also, I mean, the ambulance, I think, also serves, I mean, that's Danny changed roles on purpose to kind of be able mm-hmm. to go out into the community more to help the people. Because, and I, I think that's also, I mean, it's his, it's their growth as a character that they were able to kind of enter as the ambulance and now they can actually go to people and they can actually you know <laughs> they can they, they don't have to wait for people to find them uh, yeah well, hmm. and it also i think what i what i like about that as well is that it shifts instead of being like oh you need to exist in this space like danny has to be a street where that provides refuge for people um that now it's no you can live out in the world and this is emergency support for you, Danny. Mm-hmm. Danny can be there when you need them, but they don't have to shelter you from the world, which I think is is kind of it's a nice evolution. Yeah. And it's a big theme for the series. Like, they're all about trying to get these traumatized people to go out in the world. I mean, that's what's driving Laura DeMille so crazy this whole time, dealing with them, for example. It's what the theme is for uh, Jane's relationship with Kay this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really, really... So, when I first started the show, I was very, very hesitant about Jane, just because I'm so used to disassociative identity disorder kind of being used as a gimmick and being just sort of a cheap joke, like, haha, they have multiple personalities. But, and I say this as somebody who doesn't have DID, and I don't feel like I can comment on whether it's a quote-unquote accurate portrayal, I... She's become my favorite character, and I just really, really love the way that she is allowed to... I I think it's, like, a really, really beautiful uh, allegory for, like, how people deal with trauma, how people, like, respond to and in times attempt to recover from trauma. Like, I really like that she's a beloved character who just has a mental illness, and it's not... Like, oh, it's a quirk. Oh, it's that this is a thing that she lives with and that everybody around her accepts and and supports her through rather than like her being sort of a 2D villain or Mm -hmm. it being a joke. Like, I think it really strikes me as as really empathetic. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. yeah. And it shows the under. Yeah. (laughs) Go, go, go. And it shows the underground as a system that she developed to protect herself, right? Yeah, I love, I love the underground. And 
I don't know. Like again, I don't have disassociative identity disorder, but as someone with trauma and various mental health issues of my own, like I did find it like really relatable on this idea of like the way that you surface different parts of yourself in different situations as a form of self-protection. Like mm. I, I think it's it's just a really beautiful portrayal. I think I, one thing that has really struck me about Doom Patrol and one of the reasons why I love it so much is because, you know, I think we have a lot of like discussions about like mental health, mental health. And I think Ted Lasso is like a, a mental health show, right? And it's about like ordinary people having some problems, needing to go to therapy, pulling through, etc. But I think Doom Patrol is very much a mental illness show. And it's about, you know, having not just trauma, but potentially like a diagnosable condition that isolates you from the world and makes you different, which is a very different discussion for mental health. Like it's related, but it's not like, oh, you just meditate and then you're fine. Uh, And I think like all the characters, like I remember like, I think it was probably like season two, but it's a recurring theme of like Rita, like literally pulling herself together through kind of like talking herself through it and being like, I am, if what is, it's something like, like I am Rita Farr, Rita Farr mm-hmm. is the body that is mine. But I was like, oh, that's so yeah. like, so relatable to me about like when you are dealing with some kind of mental health episode and you have to like literally talk yourself into, into being, into, I, I thought that was awesome. And, and Jane, I think is also a really big part of that where it's not like, this is a very relatable thing. Everybody goes through the thing where your identity splits. It's, it's, I think, really doing much more than that and being like, okay, what is it to be a person who is this kind of different? And, and for me, that's much more relatable than shows that are like, everybody gets sad sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I was just going to add in as well about the personification of kind of getting in her own, like in her own way of recovery. Like the, that's, I think, a theme that, uh, like you see the scene, the episode, I forget which one, if it, where uh, Kate was actually able to go topside, and mm-hmm. her the other personalities were like not 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 cool with that, and so it was like it was one of those things where Jane had to go out of her way to say like you're going topside, we'll sneak you up, and then even after that she got like Kate got punished because she went topside, and it's kind of like how you're kind of like her own personalities are getting are kind of in conflict about what is the pathway towards recovery. Some are saying kind of totally. keep, just keep Kate safe. Don't do, don't let her out. Just keep her safe. Don't do anything. And Jane's like, no, no, she has to get better. And he's like, but what does better mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things in, in like recovery from mental illness that you often have to deal with is this awareness that like your mental illness is not you and your mental illness gives you bad advice a lot of the time. And I think we see this like in, in, uh, in that storyline where it's like these personalities cropped up as, as a response to trauma, as a form of self-protection, but now they have dug in and they don't want to leave, even if that's not helpful for the actual person, which I mean, that's a lot of mental illness is like a trauma reaction that overstays its welcome and becomes maladaptive. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see with these characters where you're like, oh yes, I can see how a young girl who's suffering a lot of abuse might create these various characters to protect herself but then when you grow up and you are in a safe environment 
they don't want to go away and they keep telling you that there's danger and will sometimes create danger to validate uh, their own continued existence. Well said. I I was excited to have um, Jane spending time with her grandma in this and like learning the origin of her being Jane. And it was nice seeing the characters speak Spanish with each other as well. The, um, I think her performance is, I mean, just every, all the different personas that Jane perform, that Diana Guerrero performs in are amazing. Um, but I felt like it was really refreshing to have her acting in Spanish and, and get the origin story of why she is Jane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and I think like this is also like, I mean, kind of going back to the, the afterlife episode as a whole, like those interactions kind of helped you understand more of why the characters are in the position they are. And for Jane, like, um, I don't know, there's like so many, like she's the primary now. Uh, but then, I mean, it also reminds me of the time when, from the previous episode where I think it was Miranda had uh, been the primary and then was removed. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> Uh, but then how the trauma kind of hijacked the Miranda identity as a, as a means of trying to get rid of the personalities. Like, and that, so it's like, it's interesting how we kind of like, we moved, we shifted from like the, in the previous season, Miranda, the, 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 uh, well, the trauma, I forgot what the dad's name was, but the dad kind of took over and Mm -hmm. used that as a way of just trying to get rid of the personalities that were keeping Kate safe. And so now here we are in the next season where now now the the personalities that are keeping Kate safe are like are they're concerned because they had this whole the last season there literally was a character who was trying to get rid of them all and it was a fight to stay alive and so that kind of fight to stay alive thing is still there and it's still it's not going to just disappear because like okay she can go up and get her bike but you know this even Jane when when Kate went topside Jane was watching from the the side saying oh no don't talk to that person they're dangerous they're like oh that was just a guy stopping you from biking into the street like that doesn't mean that they're dangerous <laughs> yeah i think yeah. it's it's kind of interesting um with with jane and Kay that the show has simultaneously argued that getting rid of some personalities is harmful and it's your trauma trying to hurt you but also that holding on to the personalities for too long is harmful and that, you know, that it's not one thing is right or wrong. It's that you kind of have to do what is best for the girl, for Kay. Um, like, I think it is kind of interesting because when, when the trauma is impersonating Miranda, there is this line that's like, oh, yeah, you know, Scarlet Harlot and whoever else it was. It's like they, they went away um, because Kay doesn't need them anymore. And that was actually a lie in that case. But... Jane is in some ways making the same argument that it's like, you know, when Kay finds herself, when Kay finds her confidence, she won't need us and we have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of complex also just, you know, I don't understand Pretty Polly's like persona at this moment in it, but I think we're going to figure some of those things out through the season. Um. I want to I want to make sure we spend some time talking about Vacation Patrol because I thought that episode was amazing. Uh, you know, staging it as sort of like it's in the Midwest, but like let's be real, this is a Catskills resort uh, during the off season where no one is there and it's tr- stuck in the past is really pretty amazing location for it. Um, and having Gargax as dispatched by the Brotherhood of Evil 
go there and just, you know, at first people <laughs> recoil from his appearance, but as soon as he's able to like share his stories of like conquering things, he's completely embraced because he's just one of the, he's another businessman monster talking with the other rich people. And it's, and I like how, you know, he's still there to this, to this day in that space, even though the mission is over. And, you know, the only person who wants to, react to him anymore is Vic because Vic is still a superhero and so he wants to fight the supervillain and everybody else is just sort of not even looking at the world that way in that time anymore well especially like I mean it, it's what's interesting about that episode for me is that they end up at this resort because Rita is trying to avoid her sense of of letting everybody down and and her identity crisis that you know she's decided she's going to be the beekeeper she's going to be a hero and then there's the moment uh where she gets the call to action and she flubs it and so for her like she needs to run away and she tries to convince everyone else to run away but then of course what's interesting with that is that in running away she gets ensnared into this situation where i mean she fundamentally is gargoax's mission um Mm -hmm. Which we like, we still don't know why he was charged to look for her. Like, presumably, it has something to do with the sisterhood of Data and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also don't know why she, why Bendy, I guess, is at the resort and like gives her the shush sign and all that. Like, there's just so much that I'm still waiting to find out about how that all circles back, and also like why. Why Laura gets in the time machine is also, I'm waiting for that moment. I'm very excited to know why she was looking for Niles Calder and traveling through time. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I like, I like a lot of vacation patrol. Um, and, and also just that, yeah, that Gargax is like, look, this doesn't matter anymore. Why, why would I go after these people? They're just living their lives. I don't care about this, but he gets thwarted. No, but also he gets thwarted by his his minion, like the one that's yeah. been like kind of there. Like he's the conqueror, announcing him every day. And at the end, it's yeah, yeah. Gargas is like he's he's like I'm I'm we're leaving. It's fine. I I don't know. And that's the the VK the VK patrol. Like the fact that he's been at this desolate, like it's largely abandoned. Like there's very they're the mm-hmm. only ones there. Yet how how did they she end up selecting that one specific location? Like I don't because she just said she just looked up a random location and it just happened to be this location. I mean, I mean, obviously the the Brotherhood of Evil knew that she was going to be there at some point, but like I'm really curious. Yeah, to your to your point, like how did she pick this spot? Like how did the Brotherhood of Evil like why is she the evil the the target? Um, but then like and then of course the fact that the minion the minion kills everyone. Uh, of course, well Rita could have gone away if she didn't go after herself i guess which which uh is also like ironic because that becomes her her call to being a savior like that's the thing i'm still trying to figure out like i'm not sure and this is a whole other thing i'm not sure if that's frida far who saved who like pushed herself into danger because she knew she needed to like die in order to be reborn or if that was um laura demille changing her face to look like rita so that she would have the incentives. Like, I, this is just spe- speculating. Mm-hmm. So we, may, yeah. we might yeah. find out next season it's not true. But, like, if she just changed her face and so that Rita would have the inspiration. Because she, like, if it wasn't for that moment 
of Rita seeing that she was a hero, then she wouldn't have, well, she may not have, have this, like, kind of re- rebirth moment. No, I will say one thing that I was, that I thought was conf- a little confusing to me in Bird Patrol is that, you know, Rita has, like, disappeared. She went back in time. Suddenly she resurfaces while they're all in the fog. And nobody seems to be like, hey, Rita, where have you been? <laughs> Like the, the the reaction there, I was like, shouldn't they be a little more like surprised and yeah. like shocked that Rita doesn't seem to know who they are, has just randomly shown up, like is aligned with the sisterhood of Dada. Like that seemed like people just sort of took that a little too in stride, which I didn't quite I get. Like, I think like the characters are really self-absorbed in that moment. Like you're mm-hmm. right, but I it also was just to me like... I mean, like, as Vic says before he gets blown up, I'm still a little high right now. Because <laughs> um, he was on the operating table. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that all the characters, I mean, certainly you have Cliff has been having a hypomanic episode that has lasted for months, which just sounds really adrenally exhausting to me when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, I uh, with one of the things that really I just think is so amazing with Vacation Patrol is it sort of kicked off... Um, uh, one of the things that I think we see throughout this episode, which episode season is people using dance and movement to communicate uh, in a way that's pretty unique for television right now. Um, The dance routine that they all kind of fall into doing together in the lounge, you know, having it spread to Kay doing it herself, looking through the, the um, sighting glasses, which is such an amazing way to communicate looking through the eyes of the primary. It's amazing. Um, I think as a, as a really great narrative device that the show is exploring. And I, I think like, you know, in some ways, them using dance as a form of group communication. Um, it's not like they're, they just, they start off by just dancing like you would at a party, but then they become synchronized, right? I think sort of, you know, it translates into what you then see with 1917 Patrol and the Adataists, where they're they're doing a dance as art, as making a statement. Any other thoughts about Vacay Patrol? I mean, I just always like whenever you see a Catskills resort. <laughs> and that's always fun. Although I wasn't totally sure if it was just that it was off season or if it was just like that this was a resort that was past its prime. <laughs> Yeah, I think like it's definitely both because even if it was in season, those places are just not like hot anymore, really. Yeah. Right? So, Although, this whole show, everything is so out of time anyway. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. Um, which actually, one of the things that I find, and I know I know we we have that question that we're going to go to that touches on this, but one of the things that I find so interesting and kind of jarring about 1917 Patrol is that apparently the Bureau of Normalcy was completely integrated in 1917. (laughs) Like, we have not just women, but black women who are Mm -hmm. working in the Bureau and seem to be equal. And I don't understand that choice. Like, like I get it, like, okay, with Madame Rouge, you need this woman there. But, like, I just thought it was very odd that they were like, oh, yeah, there's just, like, a black woman working here. Like, we're oppressing a lot of, we're oppressing all the metahumans. But like we're totally cool mm-hmm. with women and people of color. I, 
I found, yeah, I found that kind of jarring, and I wasn't totally sure why they made that decision. Let's, yeah, let, let's let's just dive right into that right now because I've been thinking about this a lot with this season, starting to the Vacation Patrol, where when Gargalax shows up and it's, I forget what year it's like the it's like the early fifties or I, I'm not, I don't remember what year he shows up in an integrated resort yeah. when there yeah. would not be, even if it was the law, it would not have been integrated at that point in time. Um, and, you know, in the moment of first seeing that at the resort, I just sort of viewed it as the way you would have, you know, race blind casting of a Shakespeare play, right. Where you're like, we're just going to cast people in this place and we're not, going to care if the mom is black and the dad is Asian and the kid's Latina, you know, in this casting moment. But then as it moves into 1917 Patrol and the theme starts to be more explicitly about discrimination and oppression, it starts to be like an actual thing and not just like, you know, Shakespeare theater style race blind casting. Yeah, I think um, I feel like race blind casting it's a very, it's fraught. Like, it's interesting. Like, okay, so I don't know if you guys watch The Great, but The Great is a show that I think does it well, where obviously you're not actually going to have a South Asian man as a noble in Russia in whatever era it was. But within the context of the show, it's like, okay, this race blind casting is a way of reminding you that this is not really the story of Catherine the Great, that this is just kind of a play on it. We're all having fun here. Um, But in contrast, so that one for me works, but in contrast, when you have things like Bridgerton or like Handmaid's Tale that are relatively straightforward stories, but people who would not necessarily be black or Asian or whomever in the stories are just there. That one that kind of quote unquote race line casting makes it feel like it's trying to just gloss over racism. Like it doesn't make sense that a white supremacist society would have a black woman as a handmaid. Like that doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it feels like, Oh, you just wanted to um, cast, but you wanted to create opportunities for black actresses. And that's great, but it's also kind of weird and undermining the story. And I think I feel like like I want to say that Doom Patrol is closer to the great in the way it does it, but I feel like it comes across as closer to like Handmaid's Tale, where it's just this like incongruous diversity that feels this I didn't notice it as much in the um in the Catskills resort scene, but it definitely stuck out to me in well, once we got to the Bureau of Normalcy in 1917 and it's like but mm-hmm. you're making you're making this point about oppression you're making this point about a category of people that are segregated and I forget his name but like the bike guy at one point in Frenzy Bur- yeah Frenzy in Bird Patrol he talks about like that black people are oppressed in this site in uh, America and that they have not done anything about it he says like you know for 40 years there's been like like Jim Crow, the Holocaust, this, and we have done nothing. And so clearly it is a world in which there is this kind of racial segregation. There is this uh, white patriarchal system, but for some reason, the Bureau of Normalcy totally integrated. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I agree completely with all of that, especially because like the, and then he even have, uh, he said frenzy, right? Was the, uh, the mm-hmm. so he had a conversation with, uh, cyborg with about how he's a tool that's being used and all this whole thing 
And so, yes, um, the thing I was also wondering about was how much the the ability to other a different other, I guess, like to kind of ostracize someone else was a, I, like that's because basically what would it be like if there was a different kind of person in this world? And are they just using that? You know, because there was that moment where they, everyone, they have a separate room they have to go into, they have to do all this stuff, and mm-hmm. it's like, are you trying to imply that if there's a different other, if a different person to otherize, that it's, like, unity on the other side? But I don't know. Like, I, I don't, that's, that scene also, I agree that it didn't sit well. I was trying to vindicate, like, I was trying to figure out why there's, like, such a race-blind policy in this, in, in the Department of Normalcy. Like, is it because they just see metas and they're like, oh, well, we're we're the same compared with them. But no, no it's, there would still be, like, segregation within the Department mm-hmm. of Normalcy. It would just be a, a multi-tiered segregation. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I think as we've seen in our actual lives, having multiple oppressed groups who are different doesn't mean <clears throat> that everybody is. Like, like, white queer people are still oppressed, even though there are also people of color like you might have tears in the way that like white queer people often get benefits that black people and black queer people especially do not get but it's not quite the same as it's depicted in the show where it's like ah, it's fine it's fine that you're a black woman come sit with me because we're discriminating Mm -hmm. against the metas yeah yeah this really fits into one of the things that i'm really glad critics have been talking about that's a a problem with the mutant metaphor you know in the x-men which has been if you're going to just people using a fictional metaphor as a way to not actually talk about real oppression um, as it plays out in the real world. And then you end up with these scenes where in order to appear even handed, you have people of color who are being the oppressor uh, and that that's really not what anyone is asking for in that. Um, And it's interesting because I've certainly read plenty of critics who are people of color talking about how they don't want to have to look in every kind of speculative or fantasy story, like having, you know, people of color be oppressed as part of the world building in it is just exhausting and not necessary either. But I think, and again, I'm a white person, but I can at least speak to how I feel about this, about like, you know, my identities. Uh, When the story becomes about those things it then feels off or like a dodge to, you know, be a, to have, uh, you know, g- characters who are of marginalized identities being the oppressor just as much as white cis heterosexual Christian men. Um, so I guess like if it was just, you know, like that going to be like that in a Catskills resort flashback, you know, like, yeah, it's fine. And if it's going to be about the Bureau of Normalcy and you have a metas behind, can only launch behind this door thing, then suddenly it becomes a choice that is kind of letting you hide a bit from having to talk about actual race and depression. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think with a lot of superhero comics, it gets to be a weird mixed bag where they sometimes go a little too far into the metaphorical. Like, I... Marvel will often do this with World War II and the Holocaust and this sort of like, oh, it was Hydra all along. It gets very mm-hmm. weird and uncomfortable. Yeah, Where I fuck that. I hate like, that. Uh, it's, that's, that's doing a disservice to the story. 
And and yeah, and as you mentioned, like with X Men, there's often like so much of a focus on mutants as the underclass that it ignores the fact that even within the mutant underclass, there would probably be people who were oppressed because of race, oppressed because of gender, oppressed because of sexual Mm -hmm. orientation, whose experience of being a mutant was different. Like, I have a hard time believing that Logan has the exact same experience of being a mutant as other mutants who are not white men. Mm -hmm. And they've been recently actually finally talking about that, which is not, no coincidence that there's more diversity in the X-Men writers uh, within the comics. I'm not, there's no movie or whatever within the writers, you know, the writers of the series now that people are actually talking about that. Um, So that's nice. Uh, Christian, do you have any thoughts about any of this? Yeah. I mean, I have also kind of a question because I was, I don't, I'm curious how, the Department of Normalcy is identifying folks as meta because there are a number of people who we who they presented as like being meta, but it's like they were passing. And so like they could have they could have walked down the street, they could have lived a normal life and no one would identify them. Uh, whereas like I mean, there are very they're like and <laughs> the the Doom Patrol, they can't. Like other than Rita Farr, they have and, and I mean Jane as well. But the like Cliff can't go out uh, and uh, Cyborg Vic, he can't go. Like every, like Vic, I remember that scene where Vic was just like walking down the street. Like he, I think he was out on a hike, and as he was on a hike, someone like took a selfie with him walking by, which is a celebrity component. But it's also like, yeah, because Cyborg can't just like yes, he he, he's easily identifiable. So it's it's kind of one of those things where I don't, I don't know. I feel like they there was, it was a missed opportunity on their part to kind of talk, to highlight the layers of like layers of oppression that took place. But also, I'm thinking like if you were a meta and you had a you know a fortune to to underlie you, I don't think you'd have any problems to deal with because you'd probably be able to just say like you know what I'll keep it a secret I'll pay off the Department of Normalcy they'll stop bothering me. Um, I mean, the closest we get to that is Laura Mill. Like Laura mm-hmm. Mill is a meta, yep. but she's kind of it seems like she is either in hiding or she is deemed useful enough that she gets to be in this position of authority. Um, I do. I mean, I will say we, there's at least one meta who just outed himself because he wanted a marketing job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That seems to be, I mean, it seems to be based on what we've seen that people will come for, at least some people come forward and identify themselves as metas and then just get evaluated and, uh, assessed for their capacity as weapons. Yeah. What do you guys think about the whole stamping people as weapon or not a weapon? is so profoundly dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and actually, the, I was, uh, one thing I was thinking about this reminds me a lot about like what Cyborg was experiencing because he had a choice. Mm-hmm. When that accident occurred, he could have gone in two directions. His mom even told him that in the afterlife about he could have used synthetic skin and he could have just looked normal and he could have just, like he could have avoided being a weapon. But uh, his dad kind of made the decision on his behalf to say, okay, you're, you're going to use all this super high-tech technology and we're going to make it, like, really obvious. So it was, like, it's interesting that, like, Cyborg had that experience as a, like, as a lived experience, and meanwhile, the Department of Normalcy is literally just hitting a stamp to decide who's going to be the weapon. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm also still not over the fact that, that Vic's dad is just like, I'm just going to use you to test around all my military tech. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, Mil- that's just such a, that's a heavy one for okay. me to deal mm-hmm. with. That, like, 
Because I don't know a ton about cyborg lore. I know that cyborg is always the most tragic character and and very heartbreaking every time um, I see him in a property. But it's it is just like in Doom Patrol, like extra tragic that it's like, oh, your dad could have just given you your life back and instead chose to co-opt you to test military tech. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and also the fact that it's military tech that isn't even owned by him. Like the fact that Star Lab yeah. could just shut yeah. it down because he made a mistake, because he did something they didn't like. Like he's renting his own body. And it's a similar, I think, speaking to, uh, I'm blinking on her name right now, uh, The his, his love interest. Yeah. Uh, but her, like, she had a very similar similar relationship with Star Lab, and like, in the end, her her her, her part the, the parts that were part of her body were just removed when she didn't want to follow orders. And meanwhile, it, same thing, like his his equipment can be turned off with just like a push of a button. And honestly, I, I'm also curious about how the synthetic skin situation will work out because I'm curious how how much is that possible? Because his 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 uh, robotic enhancements seem to be very extensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so much of this, I think it's like really interesting to see that explored through the, a black character as well. Like when when Cliff sells a date with him to pay for his newfound gambling addiction, it was just such a breach of Cyborg's like independence and like as a human being and not as property and then like I I think there's just so much in that here and you know this is Cyborg considering getting rid of his tech is just a few episodes from when he was having an argument with Cliff saying you know I'm Cyborg my tech is part of who I am Um, and you know it's something that he, he pivoted to use to become a superhero you know earlier in his life but so many choices have been made behind his back without his consent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, which is, I mean, I think one could read it as really damning commentary on the military. Um, and just the way that so many people are kind of forced into, especially marginalized people, kind of forced into the military because mm-hmm. society doesn't give them other options. And they may be pressured into it by their parents and then kind of think that they are operating from a place of agency only to realize the game was completely rigged against them in a way that, yeah, forced them to be dehumanized and, and become weapons. Which I think the conversation that he has with, um, he has with her just in, in the bird patrol and he's like, I don't want to be this way. And she points out that he is, she said, she basically argues that because he has physical power, you know, he owes it to the world to keep that physical power. He, she says something about like, you know, you can, you can sign all the online petitions you want, but when someone with an arm cannon is sitting across from you at the table, you're going to listen to them, which, you know, is, and then he argues with himself about whether or not he's a cop. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, that. I was gonna, that the cop line is also I thought was important to bring in there because yeah, he doesn't want like whose justice are you going to enforce with that arm cannon? And I think like he he calls that out. Like it's it's and right now Cyborg, yes, he's an independent actor, but like 
Star Labs still owns his body, which is a whole other yeah. a whole other thing. Where like the fact that Star Labs owns his body can decide we don't like what you're doing, so let's just shut you down. And even his own dad can't do anything about it. Like I, I think event. I mean, obviously, eventually his powers come back, but it's like how long? For how long until mm-hmm. Star Labs comes in and says, you know what? We're gonna actually repossess all of your equipment because it's a property of Star Labs. And I don't trust that he's not being spied on, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. think there's going to be more coming through that. Especially, I mean, his dad is so untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and shout out to Philip Morris, a.k.a. Seinfeld's Jackie Childs, because he is so fabulous. Um, but yeah, I, I, when I was on Champagne Sharks podcast, uh, the host spoke a lot about his thoughts about Frenzy and Cyborg's conversation. So when that's up to listen to, I suggest folks check it out. Um Okay, looking oh, well, at my one, list of things we want to... Mm-hmm. I'll say one thing I just want to tie in as well is uh, just Cliff. Uh, remember there's that scene where Cliff wanted to get upgrades and all that whole thing? It's interesting because now that we know that you know his cyborg's body is controlled by Star Labs, it, it you can see why Niles did not use Star Labs technology to make Cliff. Is Cliff? Ooh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like his his body. Yes, his body. He's been having a lot of issues, and I mean, which arguably, I mean, it's a whole other conversation around what Cliff is dealing with. But with all the issues that he's going through, he still has body autonomy. He has the ability to say, mm-hmm. "This is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to go do whatever," and there's no one who's going to shut him down because they don't like what he's doing. I mean, I always felt like Niles had the potential to do those things oh, yeah. for him because he makes his food that he needs, but it is not as extreme as the situation is with um, Star Labs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, oh God, I just, it's speaking of people who are not doing well, like I just, it's so painful to watch Cliff be hypomanic for like however many episodes with nothing intervening to yeah. bring any of that down. I was so terrified when he was babysitting. Mm-hmm. that something bad was going to happen. I can't, I feel like I cannot emotionally tolerate him losing his daughter or something happening to his grandkid. Like mm-hmm. I'm, he's been through so much already that I'm like, I need this relationship to stay the course. I can't have him like fuck it up because he's hypomanic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I do want to make sure before we wrap, I want to talk about uh, Larry and his son, who chose to work in the bureau, and then Larry being uh, pregnant, I guess, <laughs> with um, a space worm. I oh God, Larry dropping it off in the forest and then doubling back to keep bringing it other <laughs> things was just like so. Larry, yep. <laughs> he's like, but actually, here's a sandwich. <laughs> um, I mean, talk about you know, Larry is used a lot to explore all kinds of body horror continuously. It just keeps on happening to him you know the negative spirit gets to go and free go gets you know freed into space and you know he was ready to embrace being different and then he gets cast back down to earth again like larry's had a rough go this season as always yeah i i felt really bad that he got rejected by the negative spirit especially after um i forget her name but the, the Russian cosmonaut. The Russian cosmonaut, yeah. When she's like, no, you can live in balance with it and you can kind of have this best of both worlds experience. And he almost gets that and then he's rejected and cast back to Earth to, I mean, we are led to believe that he is going to die, although so far he's he's continuing to pull through. But, you know, 
everything that's been said before about the character is that he is young, he is immortal because of the negative spirit. Well, I, I was actually also wondering about uh, the journey of of him with this negative spirit because I was curious. Basically, when that when that rejection took place, I wasn't sure if why. Like, what was the why? Um, and I feel like there's a there's. I'm curious if the negative spirit was going somewhere that he could not join, um, mm-hmm. and then in their departure, he still had something of the journey in terms of the the worm. (laughs) So I'm partially curious if this is like kind of the next stage of his growth, but also uh, it it was interesting to see in that first episode, was the first episode, the one where he kind of looked complete and he looked like back to his normal self. Um, Yeah. That's, that's the end of the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. But like that, that scene is like, okay, well you're okay. You're done. You're complete. But then once the negative spirit leaves, he kind of goes back, not back, because he still has a lot of growth that took place uh, before that. But who is he without the negative spirit? Because for many years, this negative spirit defined who he was, and now he's back on back on Earth. No negative spirit. He has this worm thing, <laughs> but it's kind of. I feel like it's another interesting question that he has to explore about who does he become or who, how does he define himself when he no longer has the negative spirit. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I thought when you mentioned him looking like himself again, I, you know, one of the things I think about the show is the way that, you know, they don't have a huge budget, but they have a decent budget. And so the choices that they make about what to do effects for, what to do with practical props, you know, um, someone pointed out like, you know, like, well, you know, Cyborg is wearing a tracksuit, so they don't have to animate his chest all the time. But at the same time, Cyborg would totally wear a trek suit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's in character and also a way to not have to deal with doing that in every single moment of the episode. And it made me think about how um, I feel like the show uses uh, Matt Boomer like a special effect as well. Like they can't afford to have him physically appearing in every episode. So when they reveal his like actual face, it has that sort of, almost like a special effect thing, which they can only afford to show in limited quantities. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah. no, I, I think in his, his entire trajectories, especially now, cause I mean, we're, also bear in mind, like with everything he's gone through, I mean, to my understanding, he's still radioactive, right? So he, yeah, so he's still, I think he still so. cannot physically touch people, which I always thought was an interesting, uh, like kind of parallel where in his previous life, in his previous, when he was before the accident, uh, he was kind of forbidden from touching the people he wanted to touch. Uh, and so now his curse is that he literally can't touch people. And so I'm yeah. curious about how much like kind of his ability to interact with, interact with people is kind of an, the, like the next stage of, is he going to be able to touch someone again? Like, is that mm-hmm. going to happen? <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that's, it's interesting in this show, it's misfits did something similar where it's kind of like, most of the characters get a sort of Faustianly appropriate uh, superpower where, yeah, it's like he, he can't touch people because he's closeted. So then he becomes the person who cannot touch people because he's radioactive or like Rita kind of only has this sense of herself as her body being like the only thing that is valuable about her. And then she loses that and has to kind of learn how to hold it together. And then 
Jane has multiple personalities that then become super powered themselves. Cliff, it's a little harder. Cliff is not as direct a line and same with Cyborg. But I think like with those three, at least it is this kind of tragically fitting um, superpower that they get bestowed with. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cliff, Cliff, I was going to say, it could be the uh, kind of his not living life to the fullest, but like his race car self was much more about partaking in the earthly pleasures, so to speak. And yeah. now he can't, literally. Like, he can't, yeah. he, can't, he can't feel anything. Yeah, no, that, that's a good one. Yeah. That that he prioritized his body over his brain mm-hmm. and was left with only his brain. Yeah, there you mm. go. <laughs> yeah. We have one more listener question, which was, um, they wanted to know what characters do we think have made the most progress in processing their trauma and who's not, and what advice we might give them. Uh, so do folks have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Jane has made the most mm-hmm. progress. Because um, I was just trying to think, and it's like, in terms of who's made the least, I think it's definitely Cliff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because he he has, obviously, he's forged a relationship with his daughter, but he's still can't confront his problems head on, which is why he has now turned to abusing drugs and gambling and developing relationships with online sex workers, even though he's not in his budget. Like he's clearly like still avoidant, even as he is at least starting to forge connections. Like Rita, I feel like she seems the happiest, but it's in part because she's just, forgotten everything and has erased things rather than dealing with them mm-hmm. um La- larry i think is is doing an okay job but is still again like avoidant doesn't want to talk to people about when he thinks he's dying um yeah vic vic i think is like getting there but it's like i i choose jane as the one who's made the most progress because even as she's clearly being set up for an internal battle Jane, at least, like, gets what needs to happen, gets that Kay needs to be prioritized, gets that, like, that Kay just being safe in the world and and living life is really what the end goal is. Um, and and I, I love to see it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. What do you think, Christine? No, I, I agree um, on all of that. Uh, I mean, the one thing I'll say is, I'll, I'll add as well, is that I think Larry has gone pretty far in terms of, like, his growth as a character uh because like to the point as you i think you mentioned like sorry i think you mentioned earlier uh about he, he was able to actually give advice to uh the the ghost the, to the ghost um and i think that like kind mm-hmm. of is a testament to how much he's grown and how much he's learned uh that he can get to the point now that he can actually give advice where he didn't have anyone who could give it to him and so he, i think in that sense uh he has made a lot of progress. So I think just at least acknowledging all of that, he's, he's advanced, but now it's, I think it's still, he still has a big question about who he's going to be without the negative spirit. And also what the worm means. Like, I don't know if the worm is going to be like sentient (laughs) or if, if the Mm -hmm. worm's going to be like more of like a pet, but I think he has, I, I, I don't know. Really? First of all, releasing the worm into the forest like that is never a good idea. So I, like, <laughs> as soon as I saw that, I was like, that is not, no, please don't. Like, either, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping he just takes, he, we see the worm growing, because I don't think, I think the worm is going to become sentient. Because I think it's like, yeah. his, his child, in a way. 
I agree. I mean, and it's happening right after he finally establishes some boundaries with his son, where he's like, I did fuck up, but you're being terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to establish some boundaries with you now. I was like, good for you, Larry. And now here's my larval son, who I will leave in the woods. (laughs) Oh, I have feelings. Ah. Although actually, one 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 question I have is like, you know, like, like Lux, what are your thoughts about Ginger in the show? Wait, who is who is Ginger? Oh, Ginger is the cam girl who oh. I like. She's like, do you want me to call the ambulance for you? Yeah, like, I mean, I I feel like I feel like Ginger is not a particularly developed character. Like, I mean, I mean, and, and not that she needs to be because her role is purely to be like his addiction, which I think is. Yeah. I I don't think he has a healthy relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that her job is to have a healthy relationship with him. Like you no. could be like, Oh, she's <laughs> taking his money and he doesn't have it. But it's like, it's not her job to tell him what he can and can't spend. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't think she's like a, comp- a particularly compelling uh, 3d character, but I think that like within the confines of her literally two dimensional uh, existence, I mean, I, I don't think that they are shaming her. I, I don't think yeah. that, it's like, I don't think she's like, I, I don't I personally don't feel like she's an offensive portrayal of a uh, of a online sex worker. I just don't think that she is a person because mm-hmm. like the the yeah it, it's sort of like a neutral for me. It's a neutral. Yeah. I mean, I'm always just like checking at how those how sex workers are portrayed and yeah for anything. sure. So I'm always like, let's talk about. You know, I I appreciate it in the last episode when she's like he's clearly in an emergency she's like do you need me to call an ambulance for you like (laughs) like she is not like some parasite preying on like no she's doing her job she's like she's and she's just a person you know what i mean yeah (laughs) yeah no Um, i mean i I do think they give her some moments of being more than just kind of a uh computer simulation of (laughs) of sex you know i mean i i think she the writers clearly recognize that she is a person, but it's just like, there's not space for her to be a person. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a show about a sex worker. So no, it's not going to have as much. Yeah. So, I mean, Oh gosh, sorry. I just realized we haven't talked about data patrol at all. So <laughs> oh. I hope folks don't mind if we do this a little bit, uh, as it's one of the big things I think about. Um, so I, you know, I, I know of the brother. I knew of the Brotherhood of Data from the Doom Patrol comics. I haven't read the entire Doom Patrol series, but I have read that much of it certainly, um, and find it really interesting because you know, in the comics milieu, you have groups like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or the Brotherhood of Evil. Funny that one's from the X Men and the other's from Doom Patrol, two series that have a lot of parallels from each other. Um, and uh, of, of course, it's ridiculous that somebody would call themselves the Brotherhood of Evil, but in the context of you know, you're emerging from World War II, you're recognizing the, like, you're asking the question, like, is the entire world too absurd to be rationed with, rationalized or reasoned at all? Like, yes, okay, we're going to be Dadaist. We are the brotherhood of Dada, and, you know, in the comic systems from their rejection, saying that the idea of being a brotherhood of evil is stupid. We're past good and evil. We're going to be Dadaists now. I think the show certainly has a sisterhood of Dada coming from a very different place, but... I think it's doing something really exciting here. Um, I I was a little bit frustrated that the show didn't 
attempt to define data, which obviously is extremely hard to do. But I, I was like, I, you know, the character who, who explains what it is, is just sort of like Dadaism is stupid. And in a world where almost nobody has any art history education, mm. that kind of pains me, especially when there are characters in the show who might actually be able to say what Dadaism is and have it not be completely out of character to be like, you know, I have never heard of this before, but Dadaism was. And interestingly, like, I don't, I'm not saying you need a word at like a Wikipedia article, but like, as someone who enjoys Dadaism, I was not like, it's not stupid. And then this, the episode actually does like, over time, sort of lean into this being a response to those, you know, to the horrors of World War One, but it's completely done through an individual person lens rather than through a response to war. But they do get some aesthetics in there. And it's interesting that they're setting this as 1917, because that this, this these folks certainly would are, you know, pretty early in the game of embracing Dadaism if they're if that's the name of their crew in 19, you know, like one year after you have the, you know, the cabaret Voltaire in Switzerland. So Yeah, I don't think Thoughts? they're <laughs> I don't think they're uh, too attached to literal history. <laughs> <laughs> with this show but i i don't know i mean i i like that it's a sisterhood instead of a brotherhood um i don't know i think what's interesting to me with the sisterhood of dada is that it's not clear if they are villains or not and they're like i'm still not totally sure like the eternal flagellation seems like it's probably going to be a bad thing for people but it's also this group that is coming from such a defensive crouch Mm -hmm. um, and a group that has been like so aggressively harmed, literally turned into weapons that it's just, and, and also the fact that, I mean, this is still bird patrol, not data patrol, but no, but the fact that, that the eternal flagellation is apparently unleashed because, because Lord Emil won't make amends mm-hmm. and won't apologize and won't free Malcolm is, is I'm really curious to see where that goes. Just because again, like I just feel like they are in this, like, such a morally ambiguous space that, you know, when, when we see them through the fog, it feels like they must be villains. It feels like it must be a trick, but it's not really clear that it is. And then when you see yeah. their history, it's like, Oh, these, these are people who, who were turned into weapons against their will because they were all pacifists mm-hmm. who who didn't want to be involved in war. And so what what has happened to them and what is this eternal flagellation and and are have they gone from being absurd to seeking revenge and like what what would have caused that dramatic a shift for them? Yeah, and also I'd say like the fact that I think it's really interesting how they're like villainry I guess has shifted so much because in the beginning it's just like oh they're bad okay cool we'll trust Lord Emil, and then as time has progressed and we've been introduced to more of who they are, we've kind of seen that this is not a clear villain, and I think that uh, at the very least giving more depth to the villain uh, to the sister sister uh, to the sisterhood of Dada I think is it it, it helps to show that the how deep those real interactions go, but also I mean I don't. I don't think, know if this is going to be an Armageddon. And this is the thing that I'm like, what isn't a pacifist Armageddon like? Uh, right. And to a certain degree, especially given the kind of military industrial complex they were suffering under for the longest time. And that still exists given what today's society looks like. I'm really curious, like what is a pacifist Armageddon? Like, is this going to be like, hmm. 
is it going to be everyone dies? Because we've had a couple of those from the previous seasons and you like <laughs> right. have some really creative ways that they've been interrupted. But then I'm also wondering, like, is this so bad if it happened? Slash, is it going to happen? And then we'll see what, like, because, I mean, yeah. So I think that that part, uh, I'll be very curious to see how this plays out. And <laughs> so we still have to see how the final episodes go. But, uh, and also the fact that, um, I mean, when we first met the sister of Dada, they weren't, bad either like they were actually having some right. very in-depth like interrogations of the characters like i said that conversation between vic and uh like you know names sorry frenzy. frenzy like that conversation between vic and frenzy i thought was really a, a really powerful one especially because like mm-hmm. given how the trajectories have gone since then it's like yeah he's like that one conversation is kind of what vic's been experiencing this whole time where he's turned into a weapon so it's are they really bad is kind of what I'm wondering about. Yeah. I mean, I'm prepared to assume that they're not mm-hmm. right, but we shall see. I mean, the, the term that isn't getting used at all is anarchism, mm-hmm. right? Because like the, many of the Dadaists IRL identified as anarchists, and there was like an anarchist movement to an extent. Um, and I think like there's an interesting question where they, these characters in this 1917 are asking like, can our art make a difference in the world? And is it worth it to our safety to see if that can happen? Or is it enough for the art to just transform ourselves as individuals and to experience freedom through that? I think is a conversation that people are having about art right now too, right? And feels really timely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was just gonna say adding well, to the art part was just that, uh, like how, like that, the, right before the decision to pursue the great flagellation, like there was, I don't know, like the, I think Frenzy in his statement about all the, the racism that exists in the world that has perpetuated our society, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot that uh, the Dadas are on the right side of. So it's kind of, it'd be really mm-hmm. interesting to see how, like, are they going to flip this and make them the ultimate villain? Can they do that? Like, because they move them so far to the end. I mean, and this is Doom Patrol, so they can do this where they like move someone so far to the light of justice, and then to flip that. I'm curious how that, how and if that's going to happen in the next three episodes. <laughs> I mean, they're fighting against people who the Bureau of Normalcy's uniforms look like Nazi uniforms, mm-hmm. even though they're American, right? Like, they're very, very clear that if they're fighting against and being oppressed by fascists in America. Yeah. Also, what happened to the zombie butt? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's out there. He's out there. Totally. Um, I also just think that there's, like, a lot of Dadaist aesthetics that really permeate the whole show as a whole. So it's excited to have that kind of get more specific attention. But yeah, I would be very surprised if the sisterhood is actually the bad guy in the end. Um, that would be very surprising to me. Especially since Rita is a part of the sisterhood. It would be very cruel to turn her into a, an outright villain, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, especially because Rita put herself on this path. So like sometime in the future, Rita's going to go back in time and put herself on this path that collides with the sisterhood of data so whatever is happening in the next couple episodes there's still there's still this decision for her to travel back in time that's going to be made and i'm curious how much awareness she's going to have about who she 
has been historically, or is she going to travel back in time as a member of the sisterhood? Um, and Christiane, do you have sort of any big picture thoughts about this show as like a narrative, a, a, a show that it can be or is doing something in terms of narrative shift? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot in terms of uh, providing fuller characters, because like, it's not just saying like good versus evil. Um, and I, I, and that's mm-hmm. the thing that, and especially in like the narrative shift realm, like we actually we have a whole report on shifting narratives, which is like 120 pages. But a lot of the things you'll like one of the thing chapters was on poverty. And it was just really interesting how so much of the bad elements of poverty in terms of how we talk about it and the quote unquote welfare queen were around like tropes. Like they weren't like the welfare queen didn't wasn't an actual character. When that term first was introduced, it was just kind of a, a means of demonizing impoverished communities. And the fact that uh you have to have fuller characters in order to understand the struggles that we're experiencing as a whole collection of people. And I think that in this sense, like talking about mental health, talking about uh, kind of the struggles that each of the characters are experiencing gives us a much better sense of like why it's not just like one solution to everyone. Um, Yeah. And so that's Mm -hmm. where like, even like, even just something as simple as like the, I think you said in a previous episode, the cop copaganda, uh, it's looking at what is the military industrial complex that we live in. How do we kind of assure that there's services that are being provided to address the broad swath of issues that we have to overcome? Because yeah, like even if even if Vic gets rid of all of his technology, if that's something he ends up doing, there's still going to be a lot of other like societal issues that need to be addressed in order to make sure that he can walk down the street without getting harassed. Because it's not like that's the thing is as as cyborg he can kind of avoid a little bit of the scrutiny, but yeah. So I think just kind of getting to know the fuller characters and being able to allow folks to actually communicate what struggles they're dealing with. Thank you for that. Um, is there anything else folks want to hit up before we wrap up? No, I think I've I've I think we've talked about a lot. Yes, we have. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say Doom Patrol is great. I'm glad I finally started watching it. Yes, yes. And Hooray. for those of you who still haven't seen it, you got to go back and uh, also watch the Trevor, the the uh, Titans crossover. <laughs> uh, for those who haven't seen Titans, oh yeah, yeah, I need to watch Titans now. Clearly, <laughs> well, I will. I, like I said, we'll save this for another. If you, if 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 Alana ever watches Titans, <laughs> uh, I, hmm. I would be, be very curious about uh, talking about Blackfire and Starfire because there's a lot of stuff going on there that I think is diverging from the comics. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, well, I might watch Titans. I definitely enjoyed the, the crossover piece, but the, the tonally, like the worlds in each of these shows are just so yeah. different. Um, but I also really am like, guys, you got to catch up on young justice, the cartoon, because it's, it's back now. So for listeners, thanks for joining us for this. We will be back to cover the rest of the series soon. Um, you know, as always, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And where can our listeners find each of our guests? Where are you hanging out, Lux? Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Lux Alptrom, L-U-X-A-L-P-T-R-A-U-M. And I'm also on Twitter at Christian Perez, <laughs> uh, just C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-A-N-P-E-R-E-Z. That's Christian because we have. Fabulous. We have, I just have a fan, have a weird spelling name. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
We appreciate you guys for joining us so much. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.